Article 100 of the Labor Code, Prohibition Against Elimination or Diminution of Benefits. Nothing in this book shall be construed to eliminate or in any way diminish supplements or other employee benefits being enjoyed at the time of promulgation of this code. Non-diminution of benefits, so that the rule against diminution of supplements or benefits may apply, it must be shown that, number one, the grant of the benefit is founded on a policy or has ripened into a practice over a long period. Number two, the practice is consistent and deliberate. Number three, the practice is not due to error in the construction or application of a doubtful or a difficult question of law. Number four, the diminution or discontinuance is done unilaterally by the employer. In line with Article 100, which prohibits elimination or diminution of employee benefits, it has been held that cash conversion of unused sick leave paid by the company to its intermittent workers has ripened into a practice after three years and may no longer be withdrawn or diminished by the employer unilaterally. With regard to the length of time the company practice should have been exercised to constitute voluntary employer practice, which cannot be unilaterally withdrawn by the employer, we hold that jurisprudence has not laid down any rule requiring a specific minimum number of years. In Davao Fruits Corporation versus Associated Labor Unions, the company practice lasted for six years. In another case, Davao Integrated Ports Dividoring Service versus Abarques, the employer for three years and nine months, approved the commutation to cash of the unenjoyed portion of the sick leave with pay benefits of its intermittent workers while in Tianco versus Leogardo Jr., the employer carried on the practice of giving a fixed monthly emergency allowance from November 1976 to February 1980 or three years and four months. In all these cases, this court held that the grant of these benefits has ripened into company practice or policy, which cannot be peremptorily withdrawn. In the case at bar, petitioner Sevilla Trading kept the practice of including non-basic benefits such as paid leaves for a new sick leave and vacation leave in the computation of their 13-month pay for at least two years. This we rule likewise constitutes voluntary employer practice, which cannot be unilaterally withdrawn by the employer without violating Article 100 of the Labor Code. The extent of the rule is illustrated further in the following cases. 1.1 Food or Mill Allowance In Cebu Autobus Company versus United Cebu Autobus Employees Association, the company used to pay its drivers and conductors who were assigned outside of the city limits aside from their regular salary a certain percentage of, daily, of their daily wage as allowance for food. Upon the effectivity of the minimum wage law, however, that privilege was stopped by the company. The order of the CIR to the company to continue granting this privilege was upheld by the court. 1.2 Non-Contributory Retirement Plan, Nestle Philippines Incorporated versus National Labor Relations Commission. The employer's contention that employees have no vested demandable right to a non-contributory retirement plan has no merit. For employees do have a vested and demandable right over existing benefits voluntarily granted to them, 
by their employer. The latter may not unilaterally withdraw, eliminate, or diminish such benefits. The fact that the retirement plan is non-contributory, that the employees contribute nothing to the operation of the plan, does not make it a non-issue in the CBA negotiations. As a matter of fact, almost all of the benefits that the employer has granted to its employees under the CBA salary increase, rise allowance, mid-year bonuses, 13th and 14th month pay, seniority pay, medical and hospitalization plans, health and dental services, vacation sick and other leaves with pay are non-contributory benefits, 1.3 monthly emergency allowance. Artianco and V. Tianco versus Honorable Vicente Leogardo Jr. Aurelio Illustrissimo et al. Fax Petitioner Artianco was a fishing operator engaged in deep sea fishing while V. Tianco was a fish broker. Private respondents Illustrissimo and 26 others were Batilius engaged by petitioner to unload fish catch from the vessels and take them to the fish stall. The work of these battalions was limited to days of arrival of the fishing vessels, hence they work only a few days in a month, averaging four hours a day. On April 8, 1980, the private respondents filed a complaint against petitioner with the Ministry, now Department of Labor and Employment, for non-payment of legal holiday pay. Number two, service incentive leave pay, as well as number three, underpayment of emergency cost of living allowances, which used to be paid in full irrespective of their working days. Petitioners denied the laborer's contention, but as regards the claim for emergency allowance differentials, the petitioner admitted that they discontinued their practice of paying a fixed monthly allowance and allowances for non-working days. They invoked the principle of no work, no pay. Ruling, the Deputy Minister of Labor correctly ruled that since the petitioners had been paying the private respondents a fixed monthly emergency allowance since November 1976 to February 1980, as a matter of practice and a verbal agreement between the parties, the discontinuance of the practice and a verbal agreement between the petitioners and the private respondents contravene the provisions of the Labor Code, particularly Article 100 thereof, which prohibits the elimination or diminution of existing benefits. Section 15 of the Rules on PD number 525 and Section 16 of the Rules on PD number 1123 also prohibits the diminution of any benefits granted to the employees under existing laws, agreements, and voluntary employer practice. 1.4 full 13th month pay. In one case, the company has paid full instead of proportionate 13 month pay to some employees who have not rendered a full year service. The company corrected this error, but the affected employees complained of illegal diminution of benefits. The company explained that the error could not be considered an established practice because it happened to only seven employees in a span of six years. It was just an oversight. The court disagrees and invokes constitutional basis for the so-called non-diminution rule in Article 100. The court says any benefit and supplement being enjoyed by employees cannot be reduced, diminished, discontinued, or eliminated by the employer. The principle of non-diminution of benefits is founded on the constitutional mandate to protect the rights of workers and promote their welfare and to afford labor full protection. Said mandate, in turn, is the basis of Article 4 of the Labor Code, which states that all doubts in the implementation and interpretation of this code, including its implementing rules and regulations, shall be rendered in favor of labor. Jurisprudence is replete which cases which recognize the right of employees to benefits which were voluntarily given by the employer and which ripen into company practice. 
Jurisprudence has not laid down any rules specifying a minimum number of years within which a company practice must be exercised in order to constitute voluntary company practice. Thus, it can be six years, three years, or even as short as two years. Petitioner cannot shirk away from its responsibility by merely claiming that it was a mistake or an error. Number two, critic. Why apply Article 100 to benefits initiated long after promulgation of the Labor Code? Article 100 prohibits elimination or diminution of supplements or employment benefits being enjoyed as of May 1, 1974, the date the Labor Code was promulgated, and yet the Supreme Court, as in Tianco case above, applied Article 100 to prohibit the discontinuance of monthly allowance which the employer started giving in 1976. In Arco Metal, the claim benefits started in 1992. The ruling obviously extended or expanded the coverage of Article 100 by referring even to benefits initiated after May 1, 1974. There is strong reason to believe that Article 100 is really referring only to benefits being enjoyed as of May 1, 1974. It is intended, we believe, to protect or preserve those benefits despite the Code's introduction of new statutory benefits. Article 100 is a device against compliance by substitution. The code writers were wary of employers complying with new statutory requirements by substituting them for the benefits already in place at that time. For instance, the five-day service incentive leave was introduced by the code. At that time, many employers were giving sick leave or vacation leave, usually 10 days each. Article 100 means that the 10 vacation leave or sick leave should not be reduced or discontinued just because the new code in Article 95 requires only SIL of 5 days. This would have been compliance with the new provision but elimination of existing benefits, such of setting Article 100 wanted to prevent. Similarly, service charge share was introduced by Article 96. Article 100 did not want employers to discontinue, for instance, free meal benefit in place of share in the service charges under the new code. This prevention of substitution or diminution explains why Article 100 categorically mentions only benefits being enjoyed when the code was issued in 1974. Preservation of existing benefits when a law introduces a new benefit does not appear to be an unusual safeguard. An example again, in Section 10 of the Rules and Regulations Implementing PD No. 851, 13-month pay dated December 22, 1975, repeated in Section 8 of the Revised Guidelines, dated November 16, 1987. In Arco Metal Justice Brion, a former Labor Secretary agrees that indeed Article 100 refers only to benefits being enjoyed at the time of the promulgation of the Code. Nevertheless, he cites Article 1308 of the Civil Code to justify non-diminution of employment benefits. I concur... Separately, to clarify that the basis for the prohibition against diminution of established benefits is not really Article 100 of the Labor Code, as the respondents claim and as the cases cited in the ponencia mentioned, Article 100 refers solely to the non-diminution of benefits enjoyed at the time of the promulgation of the Labor Code. Employer-employee relationship is contractual and is based on the express terms of the employment contract as well as on its implied terms, among them those not expressly agreed upon, but which the employer has freely, voluntarily, and consistently extended to its employees under the principle of mutuality of contracts embodied in Article 1308 of the Civil Code. The terms of contract, both express and implied, cannot be withdrawn except by mutual consent or agreement of the contracting parties. In the present case, the lack of consent or agreement was precisely the basis for the employee's complaint. Number three, exceptions to the non-diminution rule. Jurisprudence recognizes exceptions to the application of Article 100 as illustrated 
and the following cases indicating correction of error negotiated benefits, wage order compliance, benefits on reimbursement basis, reclassification of position, contingent benefits or conditional bonus, and number seven, productivity incentives. Not established practice, mistake in application of law. Globe Mackey Cable versus National Labor Relations Commission. Facts, wage order number six, which took effect on October 30, 1984, increased the cost of living allowance or COLA of non-agricultural workers in the private sector. Globe Mackey complied with the said wage order by paying its monthly paid employees the mandated three pesos per day COLA. But in computing the COLA, Globe Mackey multiplied three pesos per day COLA by 22 days, which was the number of working days in the company. The union disagreed with the computation, claiming that the daily COLA should be multiplied by 30 days to arrive at the monthly COLA rate. The union further alleged that before wage order number 6 took effect, the employer had been computing and paying the monthly COLA based on 30 days per month. This, the union said, was an employer practice which should not be unilaterally withdrawn. Ruling payment in full by the employer of the COLA before the execution of the collective bargaining agreement in 1982 and in compliance with which order number 1, March 26, 1981 to, five, uh, to June 11, 1984, should not be construed as constitutive of voluntary employer practice which cannot later be unilaterally withdrawn by the employer to be considered as such. It should have been practiced over a long period of time and must be shown to have been consistent and deliberate. Absent clear administrative guidelines, the employer cannot be faulted for erroneous application of the law. Payment may be said to have been made by reason of a mistake in the construction or application of a doubtful or difficult question of law. If it is a past error that is being corrected, no vested right may be said to have arisen or any diminution of benefit. Under Article 100 of the Labor Code, may be said to have resulted by virtue of the correction. Samahang Mangagawa sa Top 4 Manufacturing United Workers of the Philippines versus NLRC. Facts The f- employer granted an across the board wage increase to its employees when the minimum wage was raised by RA number 6727 in 1989 when the Regional Wage Board issued Wage Order No. 01 in October 1990. Followed by wage order number 02 in December of the same year, the union demanded that the wage increases be implemented again across the board when the employer refused to do so. The union charged the company with ULP and violation of Article 100 of the Labor Code. Labor arbiter Jose G. De Vera dismissed the complaint for lack of merit, ruling the Supreme Court through Justice Romero sustained the arbiter's disquisition. It said, We agree with the labor arbiter and the NLRC that no benefits or privileges previously enjoyed by petitionary union and the other employees were withdrawn as a result of the manner by which private respondent implemented the wage orders. Granted that private respondent had granted an across-the-board increase pursuant to Republic Act Number no. 6727, that single instance may not be considered an established company practice. This case of top form is related also to the chapter on collective bargaining. 3.2 Negotiated Benefits Benefits initiated through negotiation between employer and employees such as those contained in a collective bargaining agreement are not within the prohibition of Article 100 because as products of bilateral contract, they can only be eliminated or diminished bilaterally. What the law forbids is elimination or modification done unilaterally by the employer. Moreover, under Article 253, a party to a CVA may propose changes to the CBA within 60 days before it expires. The changes may not always be to add to 
but also to subtract from or otherwise modify the existing benefits. The giving of a salary increase across the board to comply with ACBA provision cannot be said to have ripened into a company practice. Article 100 is not violated if the giving of the across-the-board pay increase is discontinued when such provision is removed from the CBA through negotiation. 3.3. Wage Order Compliance Similarly, the giving of across-the-board salary increases so as to rectify a salary distortion caused by compliance with a wage order cannot be said to have ripened into company practice. Hence, if there is no salary distortion to cure, the previous across-the-board method cannot be demanded as if it were a legal obligation. In Pagasa Steelworks versus CA et al., the only instance when petitioner-employer admittedly implemented a wage order despite the fact that the employees were not receiving salaries below the minimum wage was under wage order number NCR 07. Petitioner, however, explains that it did so because it was agreed upon in the CBA that should a wage increase be ordered within six months from its signing, petitioner would give the increase to the employees in addition to the CBA-mandated increases. Respondents' isolated act could hardly be classified as a company practice or company usage that may be considered an enforceable obligation. Moreover, to ripen into a company practice that is demandable as a matter of right, the giving of the increase should not be by reason of a strict legal or contractual obligation, but by reason of an act of liberality on the part of the employer. Hence, even if the company continuously grants a wage increase as mandated by a wage order or pursuant to a CBA, the same would not automatically ripen into a company practice. In this case, petitioner granted the increase under wage order number NCR07 on its belief that it was obliged to do so under the CBA. The union's demand for salary increase, even if its members' salary were above the minimum level mandated by the wage order, was therefore denied. Its invocation of company practice has no factual or legal basis. 3.4 Benefit on Reimbursement Basis Another exception to the non-diminution rule of Article 100 pertains to reimbursement benefits. For example, per diem is a daily allowance given for each day when an officer or employee is away from his home base. It is intended to cover the cost of lodging and subsistence of officers and employees when on duty outside of their permanent station. Therefore, if the employee did not leave his permanent station and spent nothing for meals and lodging outside thereof, then he is not entitled to per diem as there is nothing to be reimbursed. The monthly ration of gasoline given to certain managerial employees is not part of the employee's basic salary. The temporary revocation of the ration does not constitute a diminution of the employee's fringe benefits. The adverse consequences of the suspension of the ration is negated by the central's undertaking to reimburse the employee for his actual consumption of fuel during the period of suspension. The elimination of an existing benefit in exchange for an equal or better one does not violate Article 100. Reclassification of position or promotion. Um, still another exception to Article 100 is reclassification of positions from rank and file to supervisory. The position holders thereby lose overtime pay and other benefits under Article 82 to 96, but Article 100 is not violated. Promotion produces the same effect. While promotion and position reclassification must be done in good faith, the personal movement should not be intended to circumvent the law to deprive employees of the benefits they used to receive. National Sugar Refineries Corporation versus NLRC and NBSR Supervisory Union. Facts of the case, the petitioner-employer 
implemented a job evaluation JE program affecting all employees from rank and file to department heads. Jobs were ranked according to effort, responsibility, training, and working conditions and the relative worth of the jobs. All positions were re-evaluated and all employees, including the members of Respondent Union, were granted salary adjustments and increases in benefits commensurate to their actual duties and functions. For about 10 years prior to the JE program, the members of Respondent Supervisors Union were treated in the same manner as rank-and-file employees. They used to be paid overtime, rest day, and holiday pay pursuant to Article 87, 93, and 94 of the Labor Code. They lost their these benefits because their positions were reclassified from rank-and-file to supervisory or managerial. But it was also shown that they received upward adjustments in basic pay and allowances. The members of the union filed a complaint for non-payment of overtime, rest day, and holiday pay. The labor arbiter ruled that the long period during which those benefits were being paid to the supervisors has caused the payment to ripen into a contractual obligation. He also ruled that the 100 pesos special allowance given by Nasurefco fell short of what the supervisors ought to receive had the overtime pay, rest day, and holiday pay not been discontinued, which arrangement therefore amounted to a diminution of benefits. The employer appealed to the NLRC, then to the Supreme Court, ruling, We do not subscribe to the finding of the labor arbiter that the payment of the question benefits to the union members has ripened into a contractual obligation. Prior to the JEA program, the union members, whilst being supervisors, received benefits similar to those of the rank-and-file employees, such as overtime, rest day, and holiday pay. The members of Respondent Union were paid the question benefits for the reason that at that time they were rightfully entitled thereto. Prior to the JE program, they could not be categorically classified as members or officers of the managerial staff considering that they were then treated merely on the same level as rank and file. Consequently, the payment thereof could not be construed as constitutive of voluntary employer practice. To be considered as such, it should have been practiced over a long period of time and must be shown to have been consistent and deliberate. The test or rationale of this rule on long practice requires an indubitable showing that the employer agreed to continue giving the benefits knowing fully well that said employees are not covered by the law requiring payment thereof. In the case of bar, respondent union failed to sufficiently establish that petitioner has been motivated or has wanted to give these benefits out of pure generosity. After the JU program, there was an ascent in position, rank, and salary. This, in essence, is a promotion which is defined as the advancement from one position to another with an increase in duties and responsibilities as authorized by law and usually accompanied by an increase in salary. Quintessentially, with the promotion of the union members, they are no longer entitled to the benefits which attach and pertain exclusively to their former position. Promotion of its employees is one of the jurisprudentially recognized exclusive prerogatives of management, provided it is done in good faith. In the case of poor private respondent union has miserably failed to convince the court that the petitioner acted in bad faith in implementing the JE program. 3.6. Contingent or conditional benefits? Bonus. Neither does the rule under Article 100 apply to a benefit whose grant depends on the existence of certain conditions so that the benefit is not demandable if those preconditions are absent. An example of this is the giving of bonus which is not part of the employee's regular compensation. As a rule, a bonus is an amount granted and paid to an employee for his industrial industry and loyalty which contributed to the success of the employer's business and made possible the realization of profits. 
It is an act of generosity. It is granted by an enlightened employer to spur the employee to greater efforts for the success of the business and realization of bigger profits. From the legal point of view, a bonus is not a demandable and enforceable obligation, but it is so when it is made a part of the wage or salary or compensation. In such a case, the latter would be a fixed amount and the former would be a contingent one dependent upon the realization of profit. Whether or not bonus forms part of wages depends upon the circumstances and conditions for its payment. If it is an additional compensation which the employer promised and agreed to give without any conditions imposed for its payment, such as excessive business or greater production or input, then it is part of the wage. But if it is paid only if profits are realized on a certain amount of productivity achieved, it cannot be considered part of the wages, where it is not payable to all but only to laborers and only when the laborer becomes more efficient or more productive, it is only an inducement for efficiency, a price therefore not a part of the wage. Moreover, in Philippine Duplicators Incorporated versus NLRC, the court held that if the bonus is paid only if profits are realized or a certain amount of of productivity achieved, it cannot be considered part of the wages. If the desired goal of production is not obtained, the bonus does not accrue. Only when the employer promises and agrees to give without any conditions imposed for its payment, such as success of business or greater production or output, does the bonus become part of the wage. Thus, if there is no agreement that the bonus forms part of the employee's compensation, the bonus would depend on the profit to be realized. Hence, if there is no profit, there would be no bonus, and if profit is reduced, bonus would also be reduced. Consequently, the Supreme Court observed that the reduced 1958 Christmas bonus in the case of Luzon Stevedore Incorporation was a necessary consequence of a reduced profit in that year, and there being no clear showing that the reduction of the bonus was aimed to discriminate against union members, the trial court's finding that such reduction constituted no anti-union activity should not be deserved. An employer cannot be forced to distribute bonuses which it can no longer afford to pay. To hold otherwise would be to penalize the employer for his past generosity. American Wire and Cable Daily Rated Employees Union versus American Wire and Cable Corporation Incorporated in the Court of Appeals facts the union contends that the withdrawal of the 35% premium pay for selected days during the holiday and Christmas season, the holding of the Christmas party and its incidental benefits and the giving of benefits were customary practices that can no longer be unilaterally withdrawn. In answer, the corporation employer avers that the grant of all those benefits has not ripened into practice and that the employee's concern cannot claim a demandable right over them. It explains that the grant of these benefits was conditioned upon the financial performance of the company and that the conditioned circumstances had indeed substantially changed, thereby justifying the discontinuance of those grants. Ruling, it is obvious that the benefits entitlement subjects of the instant case are all bonuses which were given by the employer out of its generosity and munificence. The additional 35% premium pay for work done during selected days of the Holy Week and Christmas season, the holding of Christmas parties with raffle, raffle and the cash incentives given together with the service awards are all in excess of what the law requires each employer to give its employees. Since they are above what is strictly due to the members of petitioner union, the granting of the same was a management prerogative, which whenever management sees necessary may be withdrawn unless they have been made a part of the wage or salary or compensation of the employees. For a bonus to be enforceable, it must have been promised by the employer and expressly agreed by the parties, or it must have had 
a fixed amount and had been a long and regular practice on the part of the employer. The benefits and entitlements in question were never subject of any express agreement between the parties. They were never conditioned in the Collective Bargaining Agreement or CBA. 3.6a Equity or Long Practice as Basis of Bonus Even if a bonus is not demandable for not being part of the salary of the employee, the bonus may nevertheless be granted on equitable consideration in Philippine Education Corporation Incorporated versus Court of Industrial Relations et al. The court ruled taking into consideration the facts and circumstances of the case that bonuses had been given to the employees at least in three previous years that the amount of 90,706.36 has been set aside for payment as bonus to its employees and laborers and the reason for withholding the payment thereof was the strike staged by the employees and laborers for more favorable working conditions which was declared legal by the respondent court, justice and equity demand that bonus already set aside for its employees and laborers be paid for them, be paid to them. The award would still be within the ambit of the respondent court's power and function, which is mainly to prevent further disputes and perhaps strikes, which are so detrimental to both labor and management and to the public will. Furthermore, while normally discretionary, the grant of a gratuity or bonus by reason of its long and regular concession may be regarded as part of regular compensation. For instance, in Hecock Corporation versus NLU et al., the court ruled it appears herein that for the year 1947, the company paid a bonus of one month salary to all its employees and for the years 1948 and 1949, realizing necessary profits, it also paid a bonus to its executives and heads of departments omitting only the low-salaried employees. The payment of the bonus in 1947 already generated in the minds of all the employees the fixed hope of receiving the same concession in subsequent years, and on the ground of equity, they deserve to be paid the bonus for the years 1948 and 1949, when the company admitted they realized enough profits. The company insists that its high officials were given bonus for 1948 and 1949, because they had never been granted any salary raise or paid for any overtime work. This is, however, answered by the union, which alleges that no salary increase or overtime pay was necessary for the high officials of the company, since they have already been receiving adequate compensation. The company also maintains that no valid obligation to pay the bonds in question could arise, because there was no consideration therefore. It is sufficient to state that any extra concession granted by the employer to his employer or laborer is necessarily premised on the need of improving the latter's working conditions to the highest possible level, in return only for the efficient service and loyalty expected from the employee or laborer. The decision favorable to the union may further be predicated upon the case of Philippine Education Company Incorporated versus Court of Industrial Relations et al., in which we held that even if a bonus is not demandable for not forming part of the wage, salary, or compensation of the employee, the same may nevertheless be granted on equitable considerations. The Hickok ruling rendered in 1954, reverberated in NWSA vs. NWSA Consolidated Labor Union, rendered in 1967. In that case, the employer granted Christmas bonus under a collective bargaining agreement up to its expiry in 1959. In 1960, while a labor dispute was pending, the employer again paid the bonus for 1961 
the union pressed again for continuance of the bonus. The employer strongly refused the Supreme Court ruled. Petitioner disputes the grant of Christmas bonus for the year 1961 and points out that it is purely an act of liberality which may be withheld considering that the collective bargaining agreement of 1956 under which the employees enjoyed such benefits had already expired. This is true enough as a matter of law, but this court has held that even if a bonus is not demandable for not forming part of the wage, salary, or compensation of the employee, the same may nevertheless be granted on equitable considerations. And the Court of Industrial Relations, according to the law of its creation, may make an award for the purpose of setting and preventing further disputes. Respondent Court stated the following considerations which we believe justify the award. There is no question that the respondents, employees, and laborers have been enjoying the benefit of Christmas bonus. It is not denied that even during the operation of the corporation under the defunct Metropolitan Water District and since its administration and operation by the respondent authority, the employees and laborers have been continuously given such benefit. And even while this case was pending, the, w- the NWSA granted Christmas bonus in December 1960. In the 1995 case of Marcus et al. versus NLRC and Insular Life Assurance Corporation, the court quoted authorities holding that if one enters into a contract of employment under an agreement that he shall be paid a certain salary by the week or some other stated period and in addition a bonus in case he serves for a specified length of time, there is no reason for refusing to enforce the promise to pay the bonus if the employee has served during the stipulated time on the ground that it was a promise of a mere gratuity. The court further said, This is true if the contract contemplates a continuance of employment for a definite term, and the promise of the bonus is made at the time the contract is entered into. If no time is fixed for the duration of the contract of employment, but the employee enters upon or continues in service under an offer of a bonus, if he remains therein for a certain time, his service in case he remains for the required time, constitutes an acceptance of the offer of the employer to pay the bonus and after that acceptance the offer cannot be withdrawn but can be enforced by the employee. The weight of authority in American jurisprudence with which we are persuaded to agree is that after the acceptance of a promise by an employer to pay the bonus, the same cannot be withdrawn but may be enforced by the employee. 3.6b Services Rendered as basis of bonus, employees whose employment has been terminated may still demand payment of service award under company policy and pro- proportionately of the anniversary and performance bonuses considering that they already had rendered the service required. The right is not defeated by a release and quit claim. LG Marcos et al. versus NLRC and Insular Life Assurance Corporation Facts, petitioners were regular employees of private respondent Insular Life Assurance Corporation until November 1, 1990, when their position were declared redundant. A special redundancy benefit was paid to them, equivalent to three months' salary for every year of service and additional cash benefits in lieu of other benefits provided by the company or required by law. Before the termination of their services, petitioners had been employed with the respondent for more than 20 years. Petitioners, particularly J. Lopez, wrote respondent company questioning the redundancy package. She also claimed that they should receive their respective service awards and other prorated bonuses which they had earned at the time they were dismissed. The company required petitioners to execute a release and quit claim 
and petitioners complied but with a written protest through iterating their previous demand that they were entitled to receive their service awards. Meanwhile, in the same year, 1990, the company celebrating its 80th anniversary approved the grant of an anniversary bonus equivalent to one month's salary to permanent and probationary employees as of November 15, 1990. Furthermore, on March 26, 1991, the company announced the grant of performance bonus to rank-and-file employees, supervisory specialists, and managerial staff equivalent to about two months' salary. The performance bonus, however, would be given only to permanent employees as of March 30, 1991. Private respondent refused to pay petitioners' service awards, prompting the latter to file a consolidated complaint for payment of their service awards. Petitioners also contended that they were entitled to the performance and anniversary bonuses because at the time the performance bonus was announced, they were only short of two months' service to be entitled to the full amount. Also, they lacked only 15 days to be entitled to the full amount of the anniversary bonus when it was announced to be given to employees as of November 15, 1990, ruling under prevailing jurisprudence the fact that an employee has signed a satisfaction receipt for his claims does not necessarily result in the waiver thereof. The law does not consider as valid any agreement whereby a worker agrees to receive less compensation than what he is entitled to recover. A deed of release or quit claim cannot bar an employee from demanding benefits to which he is legally entitled. In the instant case, it is an undisputed fact that when petitioners signed the instrument of release and quit claim, they made a written manifestation reserving their right to demand the payment of their service awards. The element of total voluntariness in executing that instrument is negated by the fact that they expressly stated therein their claim for the service awards, a manifestation equivalent to a protest and a disavowal of any waiver thereof. We have pointed out in Voloso et al. versus Department of Labor and Employment et al. that while rights may be waived, the same must not be contrary to law, public order, public policy, morals, or good customs, or prejudicial to a third person with a right recognized by law. Article 6 of the Civil Code renders a quitclaim agreement void ab initio, where the quitclaim obligates the workers concerned to forego their benefits while at the same time exempting the employer from any liability that it may choose to reject. This runs counter to Article 22 of the Civil Code, which provides that no one shall be unjustly enriched at the expense of another. We are likewise in accord with the findings of the labor arbiter that petitioners are indeed entitled to receive service awards and other benefits thus, since each of the complainants have rendered services to the company in multiples of five years prior to their separation from employment, the employees should be paid their service awards for 1990. We cannot see any cogent reason why an anniversary bonus which respondent gives only once in every five years were given to all employees of respondent as of 15 November 1990 per rata even to probationary employees and not to complainants who have rendered service to respondent for most of the five-year cycle. This is also true in the case of performance bonus which was given to permanent employees of respondent as of March 30, 1991 and not to employees who have been connected with respondent for most of 1990 but were separated prior to March 30, 1991. The grant of service awards in favor of petitioners is more importantly underscored in the precedent case of Insular Life Assurance Corporation et al. versus NLRC et al. 
where this court ruled that as to the service award differentials claimed by some respondent union members, the company policy shall likewise prevail, the same being based on the employment contracts or collective bargaining agreements between the parties. As the petitioner had explained, pursuant to their policies on the matter, the service award differential is given at the end of the year to an employee who has completed years of service divisible by five. However, in the case at bar, equity demands that the performance and anniversary bonuses should be prorated to the number of months that petitioner actually served respondent company in the year 1990. 3.6c, no profit, no bonus. Traders Royal Bank versus National Labor Relations Commission and Traders Royal Bank Employees Unions. Facts. On November 18, 1986, the union, through its president, filed a letter complaint against Traders Royal Bank about diminution of benefits because the bonus which the employees had enjoyed since time immemorial had been reduced from two months gross pay to two months basic pay for the mid-year bonus and from three months gross to only two months for the year end. The bank, on the other hand, insisted that the practice of giving them bonuses would depend on how profitable the operation of the bank had been, ruling the matter of giving the employees bonuses over and above their lawful salaries and allowances is entirely dependent on the profits, if any, realized by the bank from its operation during the past year. From 1979 to 1985, the bonuses were less because the income of the bank had decreased. In 1986, the income of the bank was only 20.2 million pesos, but the bank still gave out the usual two months basic mid-year and two months gross year-end bonuses. The petitioner pointed out, however, that the bank weakened considerably after 1986 on account of political development in the country. Suspected to be Marcos-owned or controlled bank, it was placed under sequestration by the present Aquino administration and is now managed by the Presidential Commission on Good, Government, Go, Good Governance, or PCGG. In the light of the submissions of the petitioner, the contention of the union that the granting of bonuses to the employees had ripened into a company practice that may not be adjust, adjusted to the prevailing financial condition of the bank has no legal and moral basis. Its fiscal condition having declined, the bank may not be forced to distribute bonuses which it can no longer afford to pay and, in effect, be penalized for it, for its past generosity to its employees. Private respondents contention that a decrease in the mid-year and year-end bonuses constituted a diminution of the employees' salaries is not correct for bonuses are not part of the labor standards in the same class as salaries, co- cost of living allowances, holiday pay, and leave benefits which are provided by the labor code. A bonus is gratuity or act of liberality of the giver, which the recipient has no right to demand as a matter of right. It is something given in addition to what is ordinarily received by or strictly due to the recipient. The granting of bonus is basically a management prerogative which cannot be forced upon the employer, who may not be obliged to assume the onerous burden of granting bonuses or other benefits aside from the employee's basic salaries or wages. 3.6D Reiteration in Manila Bank When the Manila Bank was placed under receivership in 1984 due to financial distress, the employment of about 343 officers and top managers of the bank was terminated. They received separation and or retirement benefits, but they still filed complaints for additional benefits such as 
wage increases, Christmas bonuses, mid-year bonuses, profit sharing, etc. Sitting in bank, the Supreme Court denied the claims for benefits that are in the nature of bonus through Justice Santiago M. Kapunan. The court, without mentioning the trader's royal bank case, repeated the precedent in this fashion. Clearly then, a bonus is an amount given ex gratia to an employee by an employer on account of success in business or realization of profits. How then can an employer be made liable to pay additional benefits in the nature of bonuses to its employees when it has been operating on considerable net losses for a given period of time? Records bear out that Petitioner Manila Bank was already in dire financial straits in the mid-80s. As early as 1984, the Central Bank found that Manila Bank has been suffering financial losses. Presumably, the problems commenced even before their discovery in 1984. As earlier chronicled, the Central Bank placed Petitioner Bank under controllership in 1984 because of liquidity problems and excessive interbank borrowings. In 1987, it was placed under receivership and was ordered to close operation. In 1988, it was ordered liquidated. It is evident, therefore, that Petitioner Bank was operating on net losses from the year 1984, 1985, and 1986, thus resulting to its eventual closure in 1987 and liquidation in 1988. That would warrant the conferment of additional benefits sought by private respondents. No company should be compelled to act liberally and confer upon its employees additional benefits over and above this, those mandated by law when it is plagued by economic difficulties and financial losses. No act of enlightened generosity and self-interest can be exacted from near-empty if not empty coffers. To this majority decision, Mr. Joseph Hermosissima registered a strong dissenting separate opinion. He believes that the majority opinion has oversimplified and overlooked some of the various issued, issues posited in the consolidated cases. He sums up his dissent in this manner. Truth to tell, number one, the, Man- the Manila Bank is not bankrupt. Number two, its obligation to its 343 employees are legally demandable. And number three, the money for payment in the amount of 212 million has already been set aside. Justice Hermosissima, joined by Justice Francisco, was crossing swords with 12 others. It was a losing though valiant stand. 3.7 Productivity Incentives If the more common kind of bonus comes from profit, another kind comes from productivity gain, RA number 6971, enacted on November 22, 1990, aims to institute productivity at company level and the sharing of productivity gain between employer and employees, the law promotes productivity, which refers simplistically said to improve output without increasing the amount of input. If a worker used to produce one pair of slippers in one hour but now can finish two pairs within the same amount of time, the worker is said to have improved in productivity. If this happens company-wide, productivity gain will result. The monetary value of the productivity improvement should be shared with the workers. The law urges but uh, does not mandate the formation of a labor management committee with equal number of representatives from rank-and-file employees and the employer. The committee will plan, supervise, and monitor a productivity incentives program as well as the sharing of gains with the employees. The employees 
share is in the nature of salary bonus proportionate increases in current productivity over the average for the preceding three consecutive years. The bonus, it may be noted, is not gratuitous gift from the employer but the computed result of joint planning and effort. It is a benefit claimable only on the basis of predefined output level. In this regard, it may be said that productivity incentives, profit share, and bonus are of the same category because they are all contingent or conditional benefits. Their grant or demandability depends on the existence of certain preconditions. If they are not given because the preconditions are absent, the prohibition under Article 100 is not thereby violated except perhaps if there is contractual commitment to the contrary. Number 4, PD number 851, 13-month pay. Aside from profit, profit and productivity, another cause or source of augmented income is statutory grants such as the 13th month pay under PD number 851. It creates an imaginary 13 month and obliges, obliges employers to pay the employees for that imaginary month. Although not part of the labor code, the 13th month pay is discussed here because it is similar to bonus as additional monetary benefit. Also, it is a labor standard law that has spawned a number of cases. Nature of the 13-month pay. PD number 851, issued during the martial law regime, requires all employers to pay all their rank-and-file employees receiving a basic salary of not more than 1,000 pesos a month. Regardless of the nature of the employment, a 13-month pay not later than December 24 of every year. The decree has invented the 13-month pay as a scheme to augment the take-home pay of employees. It adds a one-month pay to the usual 12-month earnings. The extra pay, however, does not change the employee's basic wage. Hence, the overtime pay, the rest day pay, the SSS contributions, and other roll-up or add-on payroll costs do not increase. The rules implementing the decree require at least one month service during the calendar year for the employee to be entitled to the 13-month pay. On August 13, 1986, President Aquino issued Memorandum Order Number 28 to remove the 1,000 pesos salary ceiling, thus entitling to the 13-month pay all rank-and-file employees regardless of salary rate, but still excluding managerial or supervisory employees. Following this, Secretary Drillon issued a set of revised guidelines on the implementation of the 13-month pay law. 4.2 equivalent or bonuses may be credited as a 13-month pay. The decree further provides that employers who are already paying their employees a 13-month pay or its equivalent are not covered by the decree. 13-month equivalent is illustrated in National Federation of Sugar Workers versus Ovejera, where the Supreme Court ruled that under PD number 851, Central Azucarera de, de la Carlota, is not obliged to give its workers a 13-month salary in addition to Christmas, milling and amelioration bonuses stipulated in a collective bargaining amount thing to more than a month's pay. The Supreme Court said the evident intention of the law as revealed by the law itself was to grant an additional income in the form of a 13-month pay to employees not already receiving the same. Otherwise put, the intention was to grant relief not to all workers but only to the unfortunate ones not actually paid a 13-month salary or what amounts to it by whatever name called. But it was not envisioned that a double burden would be imposed on the employer 
already paying his employees a 13-month pay for its equivalent whether out of pure generosity or on the basis of binding agreement, and in the latter case, regardless of the conditional character of the grant, such as making the pay dependent on profit, so long as there is actual payment. Otherwise, what was conceived to be a 13-month salary would in effect become a 14th or possibly 15th month pay. This view is justified by the law itself, which makes no distinction in the grant of exemption. Employers already paying their employees a 13-month pay or its equivalent are not covered by this decree. Pragmatic considerations also weigh heavily in favor of crediting both voluntary and contractual bonuses for the purpose of determining liability for the 13-month pay to require employers already giving their employees a 13-month salary or its equivalent to give a second 13-month pay would be unfair and productive or of undesirable results to the employer who had acceded and is already bound to give bonuses in his employees the additional burden of a 13-month pay would amount to a penalty for his munificence or liberality. The probable reaction of one so circumstanced would be to withdraw the bonuses or resist further voluntary grants for fear that if and when a law is passed giving the same benefits, his prior concessions might not be given due credit, and this negative attitude would have an adverse impact on the employees. In Dole Philippines Incorporated versus Leo Gordo, the employer Stan Philco, so as to comply with PD number 851, paid its workers the difference between one twelfth of their yearly basic salary and their year-end productivity bonus. The regional director issued an order ruling that the year-end productivity bonus, being a contractual commitment, was separate and distinct from the 13-month pay and must therefore be paid separately in full. The Supreme Court reversed the director's ruling, saying, In maintaining the payment of the 13-month pay compensation to employees earning less than 1,000 pesos, PD number 851 obviously seeks to remedy the sad plight of labor in a milieu of worldwide inflation vis-a-vis -vis static wage level. However, cognizant of the fact that the remedy sought to be enforced had long been granted by some employers out of their own volition and magnanimity, the law has expressly exempted from its coverage those employers who are already paying their employees a 13th month pay or its equivalent. Section 3E of the Rules and Regulations Implementing PD Number 851, issued by the Minister of Labor on December 22, 1975, explicitly states that the term or its equivalent shall include Christmas bonus, mid-year bonus, profit-sharing payments, and other cash bonuses amounting to not less than one-twelfth of the basic salary when an employer pays less than one-twelfth of the employer's basic salary, the employer shall pay the difference. Tested against this norm, it becomes clear that the year-end productivity bonus granted by petitioner to their CBA in legal contemplation, an integral part of their 13-month pay, notwithstanding its conditional nature, when therefore petitioner in order to comply with the mandate of PD number 851 credited the year-end productivity bonus as part of the 13-month pay and adopted the procedure of paying only the difference between said bonus and one-twelfth of the worker's yearly basic salary. It acted well within the letter and spirit of the law and its implementing rules, for in the event that an employer pays less than one-twelfth of the employee's basic salary 
all that said employer is required to do under the law is to pay the difference. In another case, the Supreme Court further advised that the mere possibility that closure was caused or was hastened by the decision requiring the employer to pay both the 13-month pay and bonus should be enough to give pause and provide an object lesson to address such matters more studiously and with greater circumspection. 4.3 When CBA bonus deemed apart from not equivalent of 13-month pay If the Christmas bonus was included in or considered as the equivalent of the 13-month pay, there would be no need for a specific provision on Christmas bonus in the CBA. But if the CBA did provide for a bonus in graduated amounts depending on the length of service of the employee, the intention is clear that the bonus provided in the CBA was meant to be in addition to the legal requirement. Universal Com Products versus National Labor Relations Commission GR number 6037 August 21 1987 facts in May 1972 the employer and the union entered into a collective bargaining agreement in which it was provided that the company agrees to grant all regular workers within the bargaining unit with at least one year of continuous service a Christmas bonus equivalent to their regular wages for seven working days effective December 1972. The bonus shall be given to the workers on the second week of December. In the event that the service of a worker is not continuous due to factory shutdown, machine breakdown, or prolonged absences or leaves, the Christmas bonus shall be prorated in accordance with the length of service that the worker concerned has served during the year. The agreement had a duration of three years effective June 1, 1971 or until June 1, 1974. The CBA expired without being renewed. On June 1, 1979, the parties entered into an addendum stipulating certain wage increases covering the years 1974 to 1977. They also entered into a collective bargaining agreement for 1979 to 1981 like the addendum, the new collective bargaining agreement did not refer to the Christmas bonus paid for failure of the company to pay the 7-day Christmas bonus for 1975 to 1978. In accordance with the 1972 CBA, the union sought relief from the labor arbiter. The labor arbiter ruled against the union. The NLRC reversed the labor arbiter, saying that crediting said benefit to the 13-month pay cannot be sanctioned because it contravenes Section 10 of the Rules Implementing Presidential Decree No. 851, ruling the classification of the company's workers in the collective bargaining agreement according to their years of service supports the allegation that the reason for the payment of the bonus was to give bigger award to the senior employees, a purpose which is not found in Presidential Decree 851. The bonus under the CBA is an obligation created by the contract between the management and workers while the 13-month pay is mandated by law. Under the circumstances, the 7-day bonus is in addition to the legal requirement. The conclusion the court reached in Universal Corn is the same as in a later case of Philippine Airlines. The pilots were demanding payment of a 13-month pay. PAL management rejected the claim reasoning that the law exempts the company because the payment of a year-end Christmas bonus which is provided for in the CBA with the pilot's union is already equivalent to the 13-month pay. Relying on what appears to be the intention of the parties in their CBA, the court debunked the argument of PAL management. The court observed that Memorandum Order Number no. 28 
which amended PD number 851 requiring all employers to pay all rank and file employees regardless of the amount of their salaries at 13-month pay was issued on August 13, 1986 as early as said date. Pal was therefore fully aware that it was leg legally obliged to grant all its uh, rank and file employees a 13-month pay. Thus, if Pal really intended to equate the year-end bonus with a 13-month pay, then the same should have been expressly declared in their 1988-1991 to CBA, while the provision on the year-end bonus should have been deleted because it would only be a mere superfluity. But as it is, the provision for the continued payment of a year-end bonus was incorporated in the CBA without any qualification, from which the only logical conclusion that could be derived is that Paul intended to give the members of ALPAP a year-end bonus in addition to its obligation to grant a 13-month pay. 4.4. 13-month pay deemed written in contract. The absence of an express provision in the CBA between PAL and ALPAP obligating the former to pay the members of the latter a 13-month pay is immaterial. It cannot be disputed that the tenor of PD number 851 is amended by Memorandum Order number 28 is mandatory in supervising that all employers are hereby required to pay all their rank-and-file employees a 13-month pay not later than December 24 of every year. Non-compliance with this mandate cannot be excused by the simple expedient of pointing to the absence of a similar provision in the CBA for this would contravene the basic rule that an existing law enters into and forms part of a valid contract without the need for the parties to expressly make reference to it. Notwithstanding, therefore, the absence of any contractual agreement, the payment of a 13-month pay being a statutory grant compliance with the same is mandatory and is deemed incorporated in the CBA. 4.5. Food, etc. not substitute for 13-month pay. Section 3, Presidential Decree Number 851 provides... That the term its equivalent as used in paragraph C thereof shall include Christmas bonus, mid-year bonus, profit-sharing payments, and other cash bonuses, amounting to not less than one twelfth of the basic salary, but not included, but not, but shall not include cash and stock dividends, cost of living allowances, and all other allowances regularly enjoyed by the employees, as well as non-monetary benefits, where an employer pays less than one twelve of the employee's basic salary, the employer shall pay the difference. From Unleased Farms Incorporated versus Minister of Labor, facts the employer admitted that he failed to pay his workers 13-month pay in 1976 and 1979. However, he argued that he substantially complied with the law by giving his workers a yearly bonus and other non-monetary benefits amounting to not less than one-twelfth of their basic salary in the form of a weekly subsidy of choice pork meat for only 9 pesos per kilo and later increased to 11 pesos per kilo in March 1980 instead of the market price of 10 pesos to 15 pesos per kilo. Free choice pork meat in May and December of every year, free light or electricity, all of which were allegedly the equivalent of the 13-month pay. Ruling such benefits in the form of food or free electricity are not a proper substitute for the 13-month pay required by law. Neither may your end rewards for loyalty and service be considered in lieu of 13-month pay. Section 10 of the Rules and Regulations Implementing Presidential Decree Number 851 provides that nothing herein shall be construed to authorize any employer to eliminate or diminish in any way 
supplements or other employees' benefits or favorable practice being enjoyed by the employee at the time of the promulgation of this issuance. The failure of the minister's decision to identify the Pacquiao and non-Pacquiao workers does not render his decision invalid. The workers may be identified or determined in the proceedings for the execution of the judgment. 4.614-1P not legally demandable. A 14-month pay is a misnomer because it is basically a bonus and therefore gratuitous in nature. The granting of the 14-month pay is a management prerogative which cannot be forced upon the employer. It is management prerogative um, which cannot be imposed by which cannot be forced upon the employer. It is something given in addition to what is ordinarily received by or strictly due to recipient. It is a gratuity, gratuity to which the recipient has no right to make a demand. The Supreme Court is not prepared to compel the employer to grant the 14-month pay solely because it has allegedly ripened into a company practice. Having lost its business, the employer should not be penalized for its previous liberality. 4.7. Computation of 13-month pay exclusions the rules implementing PD number 851, which requires employers to pay their employees 13-month pay, provides that the 13-month pay shall mean one twelve of the basic salary of an employee within a calendar year. What does basic salary include? In San Miguel Corporation, Cagayan, Coca-Cola Plant versus Insiong, 103 Scra, 139-1981, a union contended that in the computation of the 13-month Pay, basic salary should include such items as sick, vacation, or maternity leaves, premium for work done on rest days and special holidays, including pay for regular holidays and night differentials. The Supreme Court rejected the contention. The court noted that the rules implementing PD number 851 provides that basic salary shall include all remunerations or earnings paid by an employer to an employee for services rendered but may not include cost of living allowances granted pursuant to Presidential Decree Number no. 525 or Letter of Instruction Number no. 174, Profit Sharing Payments and All Allowances and Monetary Benefits, which are not considered or integrated as part of the regular or basic salary of the employee at the time of the promulgation of the decree on December 16, 1975. The Court further noted, that under a later set of supplementary rules and regulations implementing Presidential Decree Number no. 851 issued by the then Labor Secretary Blas Ople, overtime, pay, earnings, and other remunerations are excluded as part of the basic salary and in the computation of the 13-month pay. Proceeding from the above rules, the Court declared that exclusion of cost-of-living allowances under Presidential Decree Number no. 525 and Letter of Instruction Number no. 174 and profit-sharing payments indicate the intention to strip basic salary of other payments properly considered as fringe benefits. Likewise, the catch-all exclusionary phrase, all allowances and monetary benefits which are not considered or integrated as part of the basic salary, shows also the intention to strip salary of any and all additions which may be in the form of allowances or fringe benefits. The court further added, moreover, the supplementary rules and regulations implementing Presidential Decree Number no. 851 is even more em empathic in declaring that earnings and other 
Remunerations which are not part of the basic salary shall not be included in the computation of the 13-month pay. 4.7A Inclusions by Practice or Agreement The items excluded by the decree may be included through established practice or agreement binding on the employer. The case of Davao Fruits Corporation versus Associated Labor Unions et al. presented an example of a voluntary act of the employer that has ripened into a company practice. In that case, the employer from 1975 to 1981 freely and continuously included in the computation of the 13-month pay those items that were expressly excluded by the law. We, the Supreme Court, have held that this act, which was favorable to the employees, though not conforming to law, has ripened into a practice and therefore can no longer be withdrawn, reduced, diminished, discontinued, or eliminated. 4.7b are commissions included in the computation. Although the San Miguel case above throws light on the, remain, on the meaning of basic salary to determine the 13-month pay, it does not answer squarely whether or not commissions should be included in the 13-month pay computation. The answer is found in the N-Bank Resolution promulgated on February 15, 1995 of the Supreme Court and Philippines Duplicators versus NLRC given below. The court ruled essentially that commissions are included or excluded depending on what kind of commissions are involved. If the commissions may properly be considered part of the basic salary, they should be included in computing the 13-month pay. If the commissions are not integral part of the basic salary, then they should be excluded. What commissions are part of the salary and what commissions are not are illustrated respectively in the Philippine duplicators and the Boyi Takeda's type of commission. That of Philippine duplicators is wage or sales percentage type, which should be included in the 13-month pay computation, while that of Boyi Takeda is profit sharing or bonus type, which may be excluded when determining the basic salary. Philippine Duplicators Incorporated versus NLRC and Philippine Duplicators Employees Union Tupas. Facts: Philippine Duplicators was ordered by Labor Arbiter Guard Duque, affirmed by NLRC, to pay its employees 13-month pay computed on the basis of their fixed wages plus sales commission. Philippine Duplicators appealed to the Supreme Court. The court, through its third division, dismissed the petition on November 11, 1993. A motion for reconsideration was denied with finality on December 15, 1993. Meantime, on December 10, 1993, the court, through its second division, rendered a decision in the consolidated cases of Boy Takeda Chemicals Incorporated versus Honorable Dionisio de la Serna and Philippine Fuji Xerox Corporation versus Honorable Crescenciano B. Trajano in GR number 92174 and 10.2552 respectively. This decision became final on January 5, 1994. The two cases had questioned the validity of the provision in the revised guidelines implementing President Aquino's MO number 28. The question provision section 5A states employees who are paid a fixed or guaranteed wage plus commission are also entitled to the mandated 13-month pay based on their total earnings during the calendar year on both their fixed or guaranteed wage and commissions in its decision, the second division declared that said Section 5A is null and void. In other words, commissions should not be included in determining the 13-month pay. Learning about the Boy Takeda ruling, Philippine duplicators went up again to the Supreme Court with a second motion for reconsideration. This time, Philippine duplicators invoked the Boy Takeda ruling to reverse the earlier decision requiring Philippine duplicators to include commissions in paying its employees 13-month pay. 
ruling the second motion for reconsideration is denied. We do not agree with petitioner that the decision in Boitaqueda is directly opposed or contrary to the decision in the present Philippine duplicators. To the contrary, the doctrines enunciated in these two cases in fact coexist one with the other. The two cases present quite different factual situations, although the same words commissions was used or invoked, the legal characterization of which must accordingly differ. The third division in duplicators found that in the instant case, there is no question that the sales commission earned by the salesmen who make or close a sale of duplicating machines distributed by petitioner corporation constitute part of the compensation or remuneration paid to salesmen for serving as salesmen and hence as part of the wage or salary of petitioner salesmen. Indeed, it appears that petitioner pays its salesmen a small fixed or guaranteed wage. The greater part of the salesmen's wages or salaries being composed of the sales or incentive commissions earned on actual sales closed by them. No doubt, this particular salary structure was intended for the benefit of the petitioner corporation on the apparent assumption that thereby its salesmen would be moved to greater enterprise and diligence and close more sales in the expectation of increasing their sales commissions. This, however, does not detract from the character of such commissions as part of the salary or wage paid to each of its salesmen for rendering services to petitioner corporation. Considering the above circumstances, the third division held correctly that the sales commission were an integral part of the basic salary structure of Philippine duplicators employee salesmen. This commission are not overtime payments, nor profit-sharing payments, nor any other fringe benefit. Thus, the salesman's commission, comprising a predetermined percent of the selling price of the goods sold by each salesman, were properly included in the term basic salary for purposes of computing their 13-month pay. In Boitaqueda, the so-called commissions paid to or received by medical representatives of Boitaqueda Chemicals or by the rank-and-file employees of Philippine Fuji Xerox Corporation were excluded from the term basic salary because these were paid to the medical representatives and rank-and-file employees as productivity bonuses. The second division characterized these payments as additional monetary benefits not properly included in the term basic salary in computing their 13-month pay. We note that productivity bonuses are generally tied to the productivity or capacity for revenue production, of a corporation. Such bonuses closely resemble profit-sharing payments and have no clear or direct clear direct or necessary relation to the amount of work actually done by each individual employee. More generally, a bonus is an amount granted and paid ex gratia to the employee. Its payment constitutes an act of enlightened generosity and self-interest on the part of the employer rather than a demandable or enforceable obligation. If an employer cannot be compelled to pay a productivity bonus to his employees, it should follow that such productivity bonus, when given, should not be deemed to fall within the basic salary of employees when the time comes to compute their 13-month pay. It is also important to note that the purported commissions paid by the Boitaqueda company to its medical representatives could not have been sales commissions. In the same sense, the that Philippine duplicators paid its salesmen, sales commission medical representatives are not salesmen they do not affect any sale or any article at all in common commercial practice 
in the Philippines and elsewhere of which we take judicial notice. Medical representatives are employees engaged in the promotion of pharmaceutical products or medical devices manufactured by their employer. They promote such products by visiting identified physicians and inform such, such physicians orally and with the aid of printed brochures of the existence and chemical composition and virtues of particular products of their company. They commonly leave medical samples with each physician visited, but those samples are not sold to the physician, and the physician is, as a matter of professional ethics, prohibited from selling such samples to their patients. Thus, the additional payment made to Boy Takeda's medical representative were not in fact sales commission, but rather partook of the nature of profit-sharing bonuses. The doctrine set out in the decision of the second division is accordingly that additional payment made to employees to the extent they partake of the nature of profit-sharing payments are properly excluded from the ambit of the term basic salary. For purposes of computing the 13-month pay due to employees, such additional payments are not commissions within the meaning of the second paragraph of Section 5A of the Revised Guidelines Implementing 13-Month Pay. The Supplementary Rules and Regulations Implemented PD Number no. 851 subsequently issued by former Minister Ople sought to clarify the scope of items excluded in the computation of the 13-month pay vis Section 4 Overtime Pay, Earnings and Other Remunerations which are not part of the basic salary shall not be included in the computation of the 13-month pay. We observe that the third item excluded from the term basic salary is cast in open-ended and apparently circular terms, other remunerations which are not part of the basic salary. However, what particular types of earnings and remuneration are or are not properly included on or integrated in the basic salary are questions to be resolved on a case-to-case basis in the light of the specific and detailed facts of each case. In principle, where are earnings and remuneration this earnings and remuneration are closely akin to fringe benefits, overtime pay, or profit-sharing payments. They are properly excluded in, the com- in computing the 13-month pay. However, sales commissions, which are effectively an integral portion of the basic salary structure of an employee, shall be included in determining his 13-month pay. A productivity bonus is something extra for which no specific additional services are rendered by any particular employee and hence not legally demandable absent a contractual undertaking to pay it. Sales commissions, on the other hand, such as those paid in duplicators, are intimately related or directly proportional to the extent or energy of an employee's endeavors. Commissions are paid upon the specific results achieved by a salesman employee. It is a percentage of the sales closed by a salesman and operates as an integral part of such salesman's basic pay. Finally, the statement of the second division in Boy Takeda, declaring null and void the second paragraph of Section 5A of the Revised Guidelines Implementing the 13-Month Pay issued by former Labor Secretary Drillon, is properly understood as holding that the that second paragraph provides no legal basis for including within the terms commission their used additional payments to employees which are, as a matter of fact, in the nature of profit-sharing payments or bonuses if and to the extent that such second paragraph is so interpreted and applied, it must be regarded as invalid as having been issued in excess of the statutory authority of the Secretary of Labor. That same second paragraph, however, correctly recognizes that commissions like those paid in duplicators may constitute part of the basic salary structure 
of salesman and hence should be included in determining the 13-month pay. To this extent, the second paragraph remains valid. 4.7c Guaranteed Wage and or Commission The ruling in Philippine Duplicators was applied by the court in declaring that employees whose income is guaranteed by way of wages and or commissions are entitled to a 13-month pay based on their earnings that include commissions. Philippine Agricultural, Commercial, and Industrial Workers Union versus National Labor Relations Commissions and Valia Car Transit Incorporated. Facts Petitioner Union instituted a complaint with NLRC Regional Arbitration Branch in Bacolod City for payment of 13-month pay in behalf of the drivers and conductors of respondent companies Visayan operation, the union maintained that although said drivers and conductors are compensated on a purely commission basis as described in their collective bargaining agreement, they are automatically entitled to the basic minimum pay mandated by law should say said commission be less than their basic minimum for 8 hours work. On the other hand, respondent Valiacar Transit contended that since drivers and conductors are compensated on a purely commission basis, they are not entitled to 13-month pay pursuant to the exempting provisions enumerated in paragraph 2 of the revised guidelines on the implementing of the 13-month pay law. Said paragraph stated in part, exempted employers, the following employers are still not covered by PD number 851. The employers of those who are paid on purely commission, boundary, or task basis. Respondent further contends that section 2 of article 614 of the Collective Bargaining Agreement CBA concluded on October 17, 1988 expressly provides that drivers and conductors paid on a purely commission are not legally entitled to 13-month pay. Said CBA being the last, the law between the parties must be respected, respondent opined. Issue Whether or not the bus drivers and conductors of respondent Valia Car Transit Incorporated allegedly paid on purely commission basis are entitled to 13-month pay. Ruling, we rule in the affirmative. It may be recalled that on December 16, 1975, PD number 851, otherwise known as the 13-month pay law, was promulgated. On August 13, 1986, then-President Carson C. Aquino, exercising both executive and legislative authority, issued Memorandum Order Number 28, which provided as follows. Section 1 of Presidential Decree Number 851 is hereby modified to the extent that all employers are hereby required to pay all their rank-and-file employees a 13-month pay not later than December 24 of every year. In connection with and in implementation of Memorandum Order Number no. 28, the then Minister of Labor and Employment issued MOLE Explanatory Bulletin Number no. 8612 on November 24, 1986, Item Number no. 5A of the said issuance read, Employees who are not paid a fixed or guaranteed wage plus commissions are also entitled to the mandated 13-month pay based on their total earnings during the calendar year on both their fixed and guaranteed wage and commission. From the foregoing legal milieu, it is clear that every employee receiving a commission in addition to a fixed or guaranteed wage or salary is entitled to a 13-month pay for purposes of entitling rank-and-file employees to a 13-month pay it is immaterial whether the employees concerned are paid a guaranteed wage plus commission or a commission with guaranteed wage inasmuch as the bottom line is that they receive a guaranteed wage. This is correctly construed in the MOLE Explanatory Bulletin Number 8612.
in the case at bench, while the bus drivers and conductors of respondent company are considered by the latter as being compensated on a commission basis, they are not paid purely by what they receive as commission. As admitted by respondent company, the said bus drivers and conductors are automatically entitled to the basic minimum pay mandated by law in case the commission they earned be less than their basic minimum for 8 hours work. Evidently, therefore, the commissions form part of the wage or salary of the bus drivers and conductors. A contrary interpretation would allow an employer to skirt the law and would result in an absurd situation where an employee who receives a guaranteed minimum basic pay cannot be entitled to a 13-month pay simply because he is technically referred to by his employer per the CBA as an employee compensated on a purely commission basis. Such would be a narrow interpretation of the law, certainly not in accord with the liberal spirit of our labor laws. Moreover, what is controlling is not the label attached to the remuneration that the employee receives, but the nature of the remuneration and the purpose for which the 13-month pay was given to alleviate the plight of the working masses who are receiving low wages. Commission is the recompense, compensation, reward of an employee, agent, salesman, executor, trustee, receiver, factor, broker, or bailey, where the same is calculated as a percentage on the amount of his transactions or on the profit of, a, of the principal. While said commission may be in the form of incentives or encouragement to inspire said bus drivers and conductors to put a little more zeal and industry on their job, Still, it is safe to say that the same are direct remunerations for services rendered given the small remuneration they receive for the services they render, which is precisely the reason why private respondent allowed the drivers and conductors a guaranteed minimum wage. The conclusion is ineluctable that said commissions are part of their salary. In sum, the 13-month pay of the bus drivers and conductors who are paid a fixed or guaranteed minimum wage in case their commissions be less than the statutory minimum and commission only in case were the same is over and above the statutory minimum must be equivalent to 1 to 12 of their total earnings during the calendar year. It was erroneous for the Court of Appeals to apply the ruling cited above in the case of a boss conductor who in his own complaint admitted that he was paid on commission only. Moreover, this fact was supported by his pay slips which indicated the varying amount of commissions he received each trip. Thus, he was excluded from receiving the 13-month pay benefit. 4.7D is teachers' overload pay included. The payment for overload teaching hours should be considered part of the teacher's basic pay for purposes of computing their 13-month pay. The Dole Explanatory Bulletin and the inclusion of teachers' overload pay in the 13-month pay determination pertinently explains overload means the load in excess of the normal load of private school teachers is prescribed by the Department of Education, Culture and Sports, DECs, or the policies, rules, and standards of particular private schools. In recognition of the peculiarities of the teaching profession, existing DECs and school policies and regulations for different levels of instruction prescribe a regular teaching load, the total actual teaching or classroom hours of which a teacher can generally perform in less than 8 hours per working day, this is because teaching may also require the teacher to do additional work such as handling an advisory class, preparation of lesson plans and teaching aid, evaluation of students, and other related activities where, however, a teacher is engaged to undertake actual teaching work after completing his or her regular 
teaching load such additional work is generally referred to as overload. In short, work in excess of the regular teaching load is overload work. Regular teaching load and overload overload work, if any, may constitute a teaching teacher's working day. Where a teacher is required to perform such overload work within the eight hours normal working day, such overload compensation shall be considered part of the basic pay for the purpose of computing the, the teacher's 13-month pay. Overload work is sometimes misunderstood as synonymous to overtime work as this term is used and understood in the labor code. These two terms are not the same because overtime work is work rendered in excess of the normal working hours of eight in a day. Considering that overload work may, perform, may be performed either within or outside 8 hours in a day, overload work may or may not be overtime work. In the light of the foregoing discussions, it is the position of the Department of Labor and Employment that all basic salary wage representing payments earned for actual work performed during or within the 8 hours in a day, including payments, for overload work within 8 hours form part of basic wage and therefore are to be included in the computation of 13-month pay mandated by Presidential Decree number 851 as amended. 4.8 Proportionate 13-month pay According to the revised guidelines on the implementation of the 13-month pay law dated November 16, 1987, an employee who has resigned or whose services were terminated at any time before the time for payment of the 13-month pay is entitled to the monetary benefit in proportion to the length of time he worked during the year, reckoned from the time he started working during the calendar year up to the time of his resignation or termination from the service. Thus, if he worked on only from January up to September, his proportionate 13-month pay should be equivalent to one twelve of the total basic salary he earned during that period. In one case, the CBA stipulates that the employer shall maintain the present practice in implementing the 13-month pay. The court upholding the union's view interprets the stipulation to refer not only to the dates of payment but also the content as basis of the pay. If the 13-month pay was not computed pro rata, then the method should include the 13-month pay should be based on the length of service in the year and not on the actual wage earned by the worker. 4.9. Distressed Employer the rules and regulations implementing Presidential Decree Number 851 provide that a distressed employer shall qualify for exemption from the requirement of the decree only upon prior authorization from the Secretary of Labor and Employment. In one case, no such prior authorization has been obtained by the employer, hence it is not exempted. 4.10 Non-Strikeable Difference of opinion on how to compute the 13-month pay does not justify a strike. In other words, it is a non-strikeable issue and a strike held on that ground is illegal. In Isalama Machine Works Corporation versus NLRC, the real reason for the strike is clearly traceable to the unresolved dispute between the parties on 13-month pay differentials under Presidential Decree Number 851, the proper manner of its application and computation. The corporation paid the workers the 13-month pay based on the average number of days actually worked during the year. The union, on the other hand, demanded that the 13-month pay should instead be made on the basis of a full one-month basic salary. The court does not see this issue as one of unfair labor practice. Section 9 of the Rules and Regulations Implementing Presidential Decree Number 851 
in fact specifically states that non-payment of the 13-month pay provided by the decree and the rules shall be treated as money claims cases and shall be processed in accordance with the rules implementing the Labor Code of the Philippines and the rules of the National Labor Relations Commission. The court concluded private respondents indeed showed little prudence, if at all, in their precipitate and ill-considered strike. 4.11 Exclusion Government Employees Aside from managerial and supervisory employees, that PD number 851 excludes other exclusions are identified in court rulings. What considerations show that PD number 851 was intended to apply only to private employers and their employees and not to persons in the government service? The court answers the question in Alliance of Government Workers et al. versus Minister of Labor and Employment et al. An analysis of the whereas clause of PD number 851 shows that the president had in mind only workers in private employment when he issued the decree. There was no intention to cover persons working in the government service. As pointed out by the Solicitor General in his comment for the Minister of Labor and Employment, the, so the social security system in the, the Philippine Normal College and Polytechnic University of the Philippines, the contention that government-owned and controlled corporations and state colleges and universities are covered by the term all employers is belied by the nature of the 13-month pay and the intent behind the decree. 4.12 Seafarers A seafarer is a contractual, not regular employee. As such, the seafarer is not entitled to the 13-month pay under PD number 851. This decree contemplates the situation of land-based workers and not seafarers who generally earn more than domestic land-based workers. The complainant's employment is governed by his contract of enlistment which the POEA approve. It does not provide for the payment of 13-month pay. 4.13 Peace Rate Workers Are peace rate workers entitled to 13-month pay? This matter is taken up in the next topic regarding workers paid by results.